All right, well, good morning again. Great to see you. If you have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Acts 10, verse 1, that's on page 918, if you're making use of the Pew Bible in the chairs in front of you. This morning, uh, we are reading arguably the most important chapter in the book of Acts. As we've mentioned a few times now, the book of Acts basically uh, depicts or narrates the outward progress of the gospel. Uh, There's a sense in which we can think of that outward progress in geographical terms at the very start of the book of Acts. We have Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so what we've been seeing in the book of Acts has basically been the progress of that story. But there's also a sense in which we can imagine the progress of the gospel along ethnic lines as well. Jewish people at that time divided the world into four groups of people. There were Jews, there were Samaritans, who were basically half Jewish. You remember that story. If you've read the Old Testament, some of the Jews were taken away into exile. Some other exiles were brought back. Those people kind of intermingled. Uh, Those were the Samaritans, and their religious beliefs were kind of a hodgepodge. They were part from the Bible and part from the pagan culture. So the Jews looked at the Samaritans kind of like we look at the JWs or the Mormons, kind of like half in, half out. Mm. And, And then the third group of people were proselytes, people who were ethnically not Jewish but who had converted. So we think, for example, of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then there were the Gentiles, whom the Jews considered, of course, to be full blown pagans. And as we've been reading the book of Acts, what we've been seeing is the gospel leaping each of these boundaries, spreading outwards, uh, crossing each of these boundaries in turn. So in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we saw a whole number of Jewish folks converting to Christianity. We're told 3,000 people were baptized in a single day. Then in Acts 8, we saw a great work of God among the Samaritans. Then in the second half of Acts 8, we have the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now here in Acts 10, we observe the conversion of the first Gentile household. It's actually a really big deal, which is why Luke gives it so much real estate. I hope you have your Bible open. Almost all sermons will make more sense to you with an open Bible in front of you. But look at this one. There's just some stuff you've got to see. This story takes up all of Acts chapter 10. And Acts chapter 10 is not a short chapter. So in, in my Bible, it covers two, two and a half pages all on its own. And, and then it also covers half of page, uh, or half of chapter 11, the first 18 verses of 11. So it gets a full chapter and a half for a story that, let's be honest, you could tell in four sentences. All it would take is four sentences to tell this story. You could say, now there was once a fellow, a Gentile fellow named Cornelius. God sent Peter to him to preach the gospel. Cornelius and his household heard and believed. They received the Holy Spirit and were baptized. Praise the Lord. That's literally all that happens. And so why does it get so much real estate? Why is this story told in such painstaking detail? And that's one of Luke's ways to signal us to its theological and missiological importance. The Old Testament spoke about a day when the cords would have to be lengthened, when the stakes would have to be strengthened because the house of God was going to expand beyond anyone's wildest imagination so that it could make room 
for all the nations of the world to come flooding in. Well, this is Luke's way of telling us that this is that. This is the day when all the great Old Testament promises of God are beginning to be realized, praise the Lord. So we're going to read the story. It's, it's a long one. We'll read it in three chunks because as I think you're going to see for yourself, there are three distinct movements in this story. As we read through the chapter, we're going to see a barrier crossed, a gospel preached, and a people included. So we'll begin with the barrier crossed. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approached the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation." For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? So as Peter intimated there in his opening address, it was a pretty big deal for a Jewish person to enter into the house and to receive hospitality from a Gentile person. It wasn't done, uh, and it couldn't be done because of the intricacies of Jewish kosher food laws, the purity code. We, uh, we took a trip from here to Israel back in 2011, and uh, as part of the trip, we actually visited the home of an Orthodox Jewish family. It's a very interesting experience. And in that home, they actually keep two separate sets in two separate cupboards, but two separate sets of pots and pans. Because according to the Jewish purity code, meat can never come into contact with dairy. In, in well-off Orthodox Jewish homes here, even in, in Ontario, in Toronto, if you go to a well-off Jewish family, they will maintain two separate kitchens in the house for that very reason. And, and so, as you can well imagine, it's impossible for an Orthodox Jewish person to just enter willy-nilly into the house of some Gentile and sit down and receive hospitality. The food laws were too intricate. There were too many things you had to go through. You just couldn't trust your Gentile neighbors to do what needed to be done. And therefore, the Jews were socially and ethnically isolated, which is why God very graciously sent Peter this vision. There was very little nuance in the vision. I love that it was given three times. It's, it's like God's way of saying, now, Peter, I know you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And by the way, don't you love that Peter argues with God? In, like, awesome. Peter is there in the Bible, I think, largely to make you feel better about yourself. And, uh, and we do. So Peter has this, this wonderful vision where he sees a sheet filled with all manner of things that as a good Jew he was not allowed to, to eat. And yet in the vision, three times Peter is told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now in terms of figuring out how to read your Bible, that might be the most important verse in the entire New Testament. David Peterson says here, the threefold vision given to Peter offers a new perspective on the way in which Scripture is to be interpreted and the gospel is to be preached. The provisions of the Mosaic law for cleansing and sanctification are fulfilled in Christ, and thus the cultic restrictions excluding Gentiles from the community of God's people are no longer applicable. Just read those last words again. Are no longer applicable. From this moment on, the ceremonial laws in the Mosaic Covenant are no longer in effect. Now, as Bible readers, we knew this was coming anyway. Uh, We sensed this was coming the moment John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. You remember that? John seems to be saying, everything that the Old Testament ceremonial law was pointing to and anticipating, all of that will be fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Christ. So that was our first clue. Of course, our second clue came when Jesus said in Mark 7, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Might be worth your while saying that out loud. Let's do that. Thus he declared all foods clean. All right, so we knew this was coming. Peter knew this was coming, or at least he ought to know that it was coming. 
But of course, as you can well imagine, centuries of tradition die hard. The point is that some aspects of the Old Testament law were temporary or provisional in nature. Now, don't be alarmed by that. Sometimes you say that and people think, oh, you know, here goes Cornerstone, right? Starting to drift liberal. No, 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 listen. This, this is basic Orthodox Christianity. And, we, and I, when I say Orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. Orthodox just means straight, uh, like orthodontist. The job of the orthodontist is to make your teeth straight, right? And the job of the pastor, in theory, is to deliver the doctrine straight without twisting it or warping it in any way. And so this is part of the straight goods, you might say, of Christianity. We talked about this back when we were going through Leviticus. Almost every week in that series, we provided that great quote from John Calvin who said, the ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage, tutelage, by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people. Until, the word until means provisional, until the fullness of the time should come when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world. So the ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage. It was like kindergarten. It was teaching kids how to add. It was teaching them the basic rules and laws of faith using colorful beads and smelly rituals. It's actually quite brilliant, but it was never meant to be permanent. It was preparatory. It was preparing us to receive the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, some aspects of the Old Testament law are not preparatory. They are permanent. So contrasting the ceremonial law in the Old Testament to the moral law, R.C. Sproul says here, God would never repeal the moral law because to do so, he would be denying his character. Close quote. Now, if you're sitting here going, okay, Pastor Paul, you're getting a little fancy here for me. Uh, you know, what we're doing right now is actually just called hermeneutics. But here's the thing. If, if you have a modem, if you have an internet connection, then you need to at least be marginally skilled in hermeneutics. It, unless you live under a rock. If you live under a rock, let us know. We could probably help with that. But unless you live under a rock, uh, you're probably aware that this past week there were some controversies in the culture, weren't there? Um, James Reimer, James Reimer, who's an evangelical Christian, by the way, all the news stories said he was a Mennonite, which would be news to, you know, Hope Church, uh, Hope Community Church in Oakville, where he used to attend when he played for the Leafs. But uh, he did, he, his Mennonite by ethnicity, but he's an evangelical Christian. And I'm sure you heard the story, he, he didn't, he decided to opt out of the, the NHL's Pride Night initiative and received a lot of flack. And I'm one of those foolish people who reads comments uh, on Twitter stories uh, because I'm just curious as to how people were reacting to that. And the reactions were quite remarkable. Uh, if you ever want to know the theology of the sports radio uh, station, and why you would, I don't know, but it sure comes out uh, when something like this happens. There were comments from radio personalities on the Fan 590 saying things like, you know, James Reimer is a, is a hypocrite. He's not a consistent guy. You know, uh, he wears a polyester jersey for crying out loud, uh, but he, he selectively decides to care what rules the Sky Fairy and his magic book have laid down for him. Basically, they're saying, wait a second, doesn't the Bible say don't wear clothes of mixed fibers? 
Don't, don't let dairy and meat come into contact. Keep your pots and pans separate. You don't care about that anymore. James, have you got two kitchens over there? No, 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 eh? But you won't wear the pride jersey. How about that? Picking and choosing, are you, James? Here's my point. And that gets made all the time. That, that basic argument gets made all the time on the internet, right? Picking and choosing, isn't that? You don't, you don't believe everything in the Old Testament, so how can, right? What that is is hermeneutics, friends. How to read the Old Testament. You need to know. If you're going to interact with folks out there, you need to know. One of the most basic things to understand is that there is a difference between the moral law of God, which is an expression of his eternal character, which does not change, and the ceremonial law, which was a temporary tutelage intended to teach the rudiments of biblical faith. Just knowing that sentence could save you a lot of angst and anxiety on the internet. Point is this, the moral law is unchanging, but the ceremonial law was temporary, and here we see it being repealed. This is the moment it happened. We see it being repealed to prepare the way for Peter, and by extension for the church, to take the gospel into Gentile territory. From now on, the rule for missionaries is you eat whatever is set before you without asking any questions. If they give you a hot dog that has been boiled in goat's milk, you eat it and ask for seconds. That's the new rule. From this point on, it is all ahead full in pursuit of the Great Commission. Praise the Lord. All right. Second thing we see in the story is the gospel preached. Peter has crossed the threshold. He has entered the house of a Gentile family in order to share the good news and share the good news he does. So let's jump back into the story at verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, we've talked many times over the course of the series how uh, these stories in Acts are intended to be read paradigmatically. 
Now, paradigmatically means they happened, but the reason they're being presented is because they also provide a bit of a pattern uh, for how life and ministry should go. So at the end of Acts 2, we've got that wonderful story about the early church, which is Luke's way of saying, this is what a healthy church looks like. And then in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we've got stories of people uh, converting to faith in Christ as a way of saying, this is what conversion looks like. And now here in Acts 10, we've got this story, which is basically saying, this is what sharing the gospel looks like. And that's very helpful because a lot of what we call today sharing the gospel is not, in fact, sharing the gospel. Now, it might be sharing your testimony. Like, I've heard people say, yeah, I was sharing the gospel the other day. And I said, oh, what did you say? Well, I told them, you know, I used to be a drunk, but because of Christ, I've had victory. I'm like, okay, Uh, uh, that's you sharing your testimony, and that's helpful, but I'm not sure that's you sharing the gospel. Or you see, people say, I was sharing the gospel the other day. Well, what did you say? Well, I said, God loves you and has a, a plan for your life. I'm like, okay, true, helpful. I'm, uh, is that sharing the gospel? This, this story is, is here to help us understand what sharing the gospel looks like. The gospel is a message. It literally means good news. And no part of it is optional. There's, you can't slice off any little bits of it. It's a message. So let's take a minute and notice what Peter says. Now we notice, first of all, he spoke about peace. So again, this will make a lot more sense if you have your Bible open, because I'm just going to refer, because we already read it. So look at verse 36. He speaks about peace. He characterizes his entire message, the entire message of the church, the, the whole word there, he characterizes his message as good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That's a Good summary. The gospel is fundamentally about reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Can you say amen to that? By the way, if you need a one-sentence summary of the gospel, that's a really good one. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The gospel is fundamentally about reconciliation. Because of our sin, we were estranged from God. We were rebels under a sentence of death. But through the person and work of Jesus, we can come home. We can be repatriated. We can be reconciled to God. We can have peace, peace with God, peace with our creator, which allows us to begin accessing again the blessings of the creator, which then allow us to be at peace with other people. By the way, one of the surest signs that you are not truly converted is that you find it impossible to live at peace with other people. That is literally the situation of an unsaved person. A saved person is now at peace with God and is accessing grace that allows them to do two things, the two things you need to do to live at peace with other people, which is to say it allows you to grow and forgive. Those are things you cannot do apart from the grace of God in Christ. But once you are connected to God, once you are receiving grace, you ought to be able to grow. You ought to be able to forgive. I've said to couples, well, I say that I've got marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling again later this afternoon. So I feel like I say this every Sunday afternoon to somebody. It seems that way. It's not quite that way, but we've got a lot of young couples getting married. But one of the things I say is, if you want to stay married, there's two things you've got to figure out how to grow, and how to forgive. But if, if you can do those things, if you can access grace from 
God to do those things. There is absolutely no reason why two born-again believers should ever get divorced. Would, would you say amen to that? Because you, if you can grow, then whatever your wife, you know, you start out marriage and your wife's got a long list of what's wrong with you, and she's not wrong. <laughs> but if you can't grow on any of that stuff, you're toast, right? You're never going to make it. And, you know, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but just a little bit. But then I flip that back over to her and I say, but you know what? He's going to disappoint you so much in the next six months. If, if you can't forgive, this is never going to work either. So there's got to be, got to be forgiveness. Got to be growth. You can access those things once you're once you're connected back to God, can't you? And that makes peace possible. Peace in your home, but peace anywhere. Peace within your grasp. So that's good news. Peter also spoke about lordship. Verse 36. He says that the gospel is about peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You aren't preaching the gospel unless you're preaching the lordship of Jesus Christ. The true Christian invitation is not just come and be forgiven. It is come and bow down. Receive Christ as Savior and Lord. There is no conversion that does not involve a change of allegiance. Can you say amen to that? When you come back, you come under. That's the deal. Peter spoke as well about liberty. You can see that in verse 38. The gospel is about how Jesus frees us from the power of the devil. Amen. In verse 39, he begins to speak about the atonement. You aren't preaching the gospel if you're not preaching the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath our sins deserved. It was on the cross that Jesus paid the debt that we owed. It was on the cross that Jesus tore the veil, making it possible for us to go home, not as rebels, not as traitors, but as sons and daughters of God. The cross is the center and the source of it all. Thanks be to God. In verse 40, Peter begins to speak about the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are above all people most to be pitied. But thanks be to God, he did rise from the dead. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will rise from the dead as well. Whoever believes in him... Though he die, yet shall he live. That's the gospel. But that life begins with judgment. Peter begins to speak about that in verse 42. Now, this is the part we often leave out as modern-day evangelicals. But it was a big part of the first century presentation. Peter is very clear that Jesus is not just our Savior. He's not just our Lord. Jesus is our judge. When is the last time you told anybody that? That's part of the gospel. It says it right here. He is the one. He, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Every human being made in the image and likeness of God will one day stand in the flesh before their creator and give an account for their life. Give an account for every word. Give an account for every action. Jesus talked about that. He he said you're going to, Give an account even for your words. He said that in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You prepared for that? Can you imagine? I mean, just imagine that there was a tape recorder hung around your neck that you wore it like one of those big gold chain things. And it, it recorded. Every time you open your mouth, it just the record button 
recorded, and it recorded every single word you've ever said. Even the stuff you say in your car. I catch myself staying stuff in the car. I'm too polite to say when other people are around. Right? Like, what in the world were you thinking? And then when I see them in person, I'm like, oh, so nice to see you. Right? Like, <laughs> but can you imagine that? There's, a, there's a, a tape recorder around your neck recording every single word that you say. You prepared to answer for every one of those words? If you've put your faith in Jesus, then you will not be punished for those things. You still have to answer, but you will not be punished. That's the climax of Peter's presentation. Verse 43, he speaks about the forgiveness of sins. He says, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's preaching the gospel. Now, of course, you don't have to cover all those bases every single time you open your mouth to share the gospel with somebody because not all encounters last that long. Sometimes if you're lucky to get one base covered or two bases covered, my point is simply to say we are not at liberty to edit out any particular aspect of the gospel to make it more appealing to our friends and neighbors. The message is what it is. We simply steward it and pass it on. The last thing we see in the story is a people included. So we'll jump back now into Acts 10 at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This event is often referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. It was a way for God to communicate that these people were just as saved as the Jewish people who got saved back in Acts Two, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If you are in Christ, then you are a new creation. You are a son or a daughter of the king. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you have the premier promise in the entire Bible. This goes all the way back to the prophet Ezekiel, who records the greatest promise ever made in the Old Testament. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Well, this is Luke saying, this is that. And wonder of wonders, this promise has actually been expanded and applied wider than any of us had ever hoped or dreamed. It is being, in, it is being applied now even to the Gentiles. The fact that they received the Holy Spirit means that there was no argument to be made as to why they should not be baptized. And so they were. They were received into the church as full and equal members. And with that, the ancient barriers became irrelevant. Now, how do we know that? How do we know we're getting the right message out of this story? Well, look at the 
very end of the story, Luke closes the narrative by saying, then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter had a sleepover in a Gentile household. John Stott says here, Peter's acceptance of their hospitality demonstrated the new Jewish-Gentile solidarity which Christ had established. Praise the Lord. So that's the story. Now, as I said, it's, it's arguably the most important story in the book of Acts. I've read commentators this week who've said that it is arguably the most important story in the entire New Testament after the story of Christ's death and resurrection. There are innumerable takeaways for us from this story, but many of them will be worked out in the chapters that are coming, and we're going to get to those in turn. So today, I just want to focus in on one in the few minutes remaining to us. If this passage is intended to be read paradigmatically, which I think it is, then the Holy Spirit is saying that the church of Jesus Christ should be a boundary-crossing, gospel-preaching, other-including kind of place. Maybe we should say that again. The church of Jesus Christ should be a boundary-crossing, gospel-preaching, other-including kind of place. And for us to do that, for us to figure out, well, what does that look like? I think we need to ask and answer a very important question, and it is this. In what sense? Here's the sticky part. In what sense is the church of Jesus Christ to be inclusive? In the wider evangelical world, it is entirely possible that you will encounter a preacher or a writer saying that because God told Peter, arise, kill, and eat, and because God said what God has called clean, do not call common, then it is no longer appropriate for the church to exclude anyone on any basis. I've heard that argument made, for example, to suggest that it is time for the church to change or mute her teaching on human sexuality. But is that the kind of inclusion that is being called for here? I think the answer is actually remarkably clear for anyone who is honestly reading the text. We can see it plainly and transparently in verses 34 to 35. Peter tells us how he understood the vision and how he understood the words that were given to interpret the vision. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So there's your basis for inclusion. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Doesn't matter what nation you come from. Doesn't matter any of that. All that matters is whether you fear him, whether you do what is acceptable to him. All right, well, we need to know then. What does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? That's a very Jewish expression, but of course, the whole point of the story is that Peter's a very Jewish guy. So we need to figure out what that Old Testament expression means. Old Testament scholar Charles Bridges says, hopefully here, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence. There's a good little phrase, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. So in essence, Peter is saying, anyone, anyone can be reconciled to God through the gospel of peace. It doesn't matter where you come from. 
Doesn't matter where you grew up. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter what your religious background is. Doesn't matter whether you have two kitchens or one kitchen, one set of pot or two set of pots. None of that matters anymore. What matters is that you come to God humbly and carefully in the way that he prescribes, which is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that you relate to him with affectionate reverence, which is to say you love him and obey him. If you do that, then you will be accepted. You'll be accepted by God, and you'll be included in the church. That's what's on the table today. So if that sounds good to you, then come. Come unto Jesus and be saved. Friends, we have another baptism service coming up on Easter Sunday. If you've heard the word and you have responded to it with faith today, then come. If you want to come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you want to begin relating to your heavenly Father with affectionate reverence, then it would be our privilege to speak to you today. After the service, you can speak to me or to Pastor Matt. We'll get you ready and prepared to return to your maker and to be welcomed into the church of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible story. We thank you for a gospel that just keeps overflowing boundaries, that keeps reaching out. And Lord, even as I look around this room, I realize that even still today, the church of Jesus Christ is probably the most diverse gathering in the city of Aurelia today. I can't think of where you would see this many people of different ages interacting. Lord, I can't think of a place where you'd see people gathered from different socioeconomic groups, different languages, different nations gathering together as brothers and sisters, sharing in common their fellowship in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this place. And we pray that as our outside community becomes more tribal and hostile, as consensus breaks down, Lord, that this would be an aspect of the church's ministry that we could foreground, that the health of this multi-generational community could be part of what we put forward, that the health of this multinational community could be part of what we put forward. And I pray, Lord, that more and more people out there would see it and desire to be a part of it. Lord, if a desire to belong becomes an encouragement to believe, then we would give you thanks. You did tell us to be a city on a hill. May that be the case. May that be the case even this morning in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls gathered here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.